It's Friday, November 7th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Mitch McConnell. Been listening to a lot of Mitch McConnell lately. Got a Mitch McConnell voice in my head. It's John Stewart's sad turtle voice from The Daily Show. Well, thank, thanks, Jimmy. Can't read it now. <laughs> just just going to go back to working on my But then I heard the real Mitch McConnell. As I said, I'm on a McConnell fest, and I'm hearing a different voice. Can you hear it, too? Here's the real Mitch. When the American people choose divided government, I don't think it means they don't want us to do anything. And here's who he reminded me of. He watches me sometimes on MSNBC, but other than that, he doesn't, I mean, he doesn't watch videos, and hey, that's not part of the program. So, Yeah, that's Don Imus. I think Mitch McConnell sounds a little like Don Imus, another example of the presumed Senate majority leader to be. It's like waving a red flag in front of a bull to say, if you guys don't do what I want, I'm going to do it on my own. And now here's former coked-up shock jock Don Imus. Coming up over the next couple of weeks, you can win tickets to actually come out there and see us at the U.S. Open. You hear it? Maybe not. If we could get Mitch McConnell to say WNBC, maybe we're in business. On the show today, ever hear of the Dunning-Kruger effect? It's about how really wrong people are often the most confident that they're right. Actually, is that what it is? Yes, I am sure that that is what it is. And if it's not, we will have on the Dunning part, David Dunning, to discuss certain dunces. And in the Antan Twig, Lopstars will be awarded. Nobody beats the Antan Twig. But first, the flag has four corners, unless it's Nepal. But we at the gist have only one corner. It's Vexillology Corner. It's time for another Vexillology Corner. What's been vexing us in the world of Vexillology are both the exalted and the depressing in a way. We're going to talk about a joyous occasion, which is a country coming together and designing a flag. And also, we're going to ponder the flag of ISIS, which is a troubling flag about a troubling group. Joining us, really the founding force behind Vexillology Corner, is Ted Kay. He's the former editor of The Raven, which is the journal of the North American Vexillological Association. Hello, Ted. Howdy. Hey, let's start with the good stuff. Let's start with New Zealand. They are Having a referendum, the referenda are costing 26 million New Zealish dollars. That's about 14 million American. But this shows that they're serious, I think, you tell me, they're serious about redesigning their flag. Is that right? That's right. John Key, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, is echoing what happened 50 years ago in Canada, where Lester Pearson led Canada into replacing the old flag with a new one, which is now beloved in Canada, and in some ways is doing the same thing, trying to get the Union Jack off of the flag and having a flag that is distinctive and representative of New Zealand. So describe New Zealand's flag now. New Zealand's flag is a British blue ensign that is a blue field with a Union Jack in the upper left-hand corner. And in the middle of the uh, open area of the flag is a depiction of the Southern Cross, Crux Australis, with just four stars in it, and each star is bordered in red. Now, New Zealand's flag has two problems. I mean, by itself, it would be quite a lovely flag, nice colors. The red borders on the stars are a nice effect. But not only does it have that British cross in the uh, upper left-hand corner, 
It looks almost entirely like Australia's flag. Different number of stars, but very, very similar. So it's very similar to two countries that it's probably always compared to. I could see the desire to get out from under the thumb of those two flags. I think that's part of what's driving the urge to change. So what alternatives have you seen that catch your eye for any reason? Well, there are two major ones that John Key is supporting. One is the flag that's the flag of the All Blacks, the rugby team. Rugby is the national sport in New Zealand, and it carries the silver fern. So it's a white fern on a black background. And that fern has been used to represent New Zealand as an informal symbol, uh, quasi-national symbol, since the 1880s. If they were to adopt that, it would be very much like Canada, just putting in the foreground a, a leaf and having the leaf represent the country and having very simple <laughs> I hadn't there. thought of it that way. That's a good way to put it. What are the downsides with that black and white flag with just the fern on it? Well, a downside is that it's black, and I'm not sure of any other national flag that's black. Uh, and there is currently some association with the black flag of Muhammad that's being used in the Middle East at this point. Right. I mean, you think black flags, you either think the ISIS flag now or the Jolly Roger. Those are the associations. So that's a potential downside. I don't think that's a terrible thing, though, because that makes the flag very distinctive. And this leaf is very nice. Is it easy to draw easy enough? It's easy enough. Uh, someone could draw it and come up with a pretty good representation of it. As you know, one of the principles of flag design is simplicity, and one of the tests of simplicity is that a child should be able to draw the flag from memory. And I think that they would be able to, especially if it's just the black and white one. So what's the other... I, I think so. The yeah. other one that's up is a flag that has the fern on it as well. It was designed by a guy named Kyle Lockwood in 2005, it also has the silver fern on it. The fern is on the left-hand side of the flag and divides the flag into a red and a blue portion. And on the blue portion continues the four-star crux australis with red stars with white edges. So on the plus side, and this flag won a Wellington newspaper competition and has won uh, different polls, on the plus side is it unites the old and the new. It has a little something for everyone. But on the negative side is it has a little something for everyone. The history of flags that try to be all things to all people is you wind up being non-distinctive. Personally, from a flag design standpoint, I would prefer the white silver fern on black for its simplicity. But the Kyle Lockwood flag is a pretty good flag. The referenda that John Key is proposing, I believe, are happening in the wrong order. Ah. The first referendum is to choose among alternative designs, those two being the most prominent alternatives. The second referendum is to choose whether to replace the current flag with one of the new designs. I think that's backwards. I think the decision to change the flag ought to come first. Yeah. And then once the decision is made to change the flag, then New Zealanders ought to decide which flag replaces it. That's the order that was successful in Canada in 1964-65. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about that other black and white flag that is flying prominently in areas of the Middle East. This is the flag of ISIS. Describe this flag for me. The flag of ISIS, or ISIL, or now the Islamic State, is a black flag with an inscription on the top and a white disc on the bottom. The inscription on the top is the first part of the Shahada, there is no God but Allah, 
and the white disc is the so-called seal of Muhammad with the words Muhammad, God, and Messenger, which represent the key words of the second part of the Shahada, which is, and Muhammad is his prophet. Mm-hmm. It's in a uh, much more crude calligraphic handwriting than the Saudi Arabian flag, which is a green flag with that same inscription in it, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. The Islamic State flag is, I think, purposely more simple to show their connection with the people. Do you know if the flag is standardized? And we see many, many different flags that really are the same flag. It just looks crudely drawn or people drawing them themselves. That's why the circle, the disc is not exactly a perfect circle. And that's why the writing looks cruder than, say, the Saudi Arabian flag. I think both are true. I think there are a lot of handmade flags out there, but also I've seen images with hundreds of flags in them, and so these flags are being mass-produced. Now, people feel very passionate about their flags. Flags often represent countries that are very terrible countries. This is almost a unique case in that the goals and the tactics of ISIS are just deplorable, barbaric, all of that. I don't know, can you separate that when talking about if the flag does its job to communicate? I'm sure you can. You could talk about this flag doing what flags do as a rallying and communicative tool. How does it do as far as that criteria? Absolutely. Uh, When we talk about flag design, Hitler's Germany was superb at flag design. Even though we disagree with what they did, we can evaluate their flag design prowess. In the same way, this flag is clearly made for... PR purposes. You see it in photos of every activity of the Islamic State, and the message they are trying to portray is we are doing this in a holy cause. They're using a holy script and a a holy message and invoking the name of Allah to support their cause. By having those symbols on their flag, they are trying to provide support for their cause, and in fact, having the seal of Muhammad, the so-called seal of Muhammad, gives them some historical authenticity to their cause. Anything else you want to say about the ISIS flag? Well, an an interesting issue is there are some groups that in the Middle East and, and beyond that are opposed to the Islamic State. I've seen an image of a group in Afghanistan burning a flag to protest the Islamic State. The challenge is, in Islam, burning a flag with Allah's name on it is a big problem. So the image I saw in Afghanistan is a flag that looks like the Islamic State's flag, but actually has the words Islamic State on it in Arabic instead of the Shahada. Ted Kay, former editor of The Raven, the Journal of Nava North American Vexillological Association. Thank you so much, Ted. Thank you for having me. As the poet once said, I'm the decider. We prize certainty in our leaders. Confident, that's a word associated with a man you want to vote for. Dithering, please, stay in the Senate. Or worse yet, the State Department, Johnny Nuance. But it's not just our leaders, it's ourselves. We have amazing levels of certainty even when we most certainly should not. The researcher David Dunning has looked into this. He's a professor of psychology at Cornell. He studies accuracy and illusion in human judgment. And I could also say that he is a confident idiot. 
And the reason I say that is he has written an article titled, We Are All Confident Idiots in the magazine Pacific Standard. Hello, Dr. Dunning. How are you? I'm doing well. Could you just take me through some of the experiments that you do to demonstrate that many of us are becoming confident idiots? What we do is we'll approach people and give them some sort of task or some sort of test to take, uh, like it might be just a test they're taking in their college class. It might be a test on problem solving or logical reasoning or emotional intelligence or how to hi- uh, handle a firearm. And then basically take a look at how well people think they do on those tests or those tasks relative to how well they're actually doing. And essentially what we find is that uh, people at the bottom, people who are really doing badly relative to everybody else, have very little insight into how badly they're doing. They think they're doing just fine. The key uh, lesson that we've always wanted people to take away from that is that person doing poorly is each of us sooner or later. Uh, At some point, we'll be doing something badly or we'll miss an opportunity or we'll make a wrong decision. Uh, but be very, very co- confident in it, confident in it, not have much uh, insight into how wrong we are. Right. So you find, for instance, that the people who are perfectly informed and the people who are perfectly misinformed, they look very similar in how confident they are about their information. Maybe the people in between are a little unconfident, but really, really misinformed people think of themselves as really, really informed. Well, that could happen uh, simply because they have a rule in their head or they have some sort of belief in their head that guides their thinking and guides their action that they believe in just as strongly as people who just happen to be believing the right things. Right. And at a certain point, like dodging saber-toothed tigers or whatever, like just have a theory and run, right? As opposed to wonder how to dodge the saber-toothed tiger. Are you of the opinion that this, that confidence, even in things that you're wrong about, is becoming in the modern age more of a bug and less of a feature? The consequences can range uh, much farther. So, for example, there's a way to think about uh, the financial crisis of 2008 as one big, huge collective exercise in creating a financial world that no one understood. So people were applying for mortgages they didn't understand. People were creating financial instruments that even Wall Street experts didn't understand. But our mistakes, unfortunately, can have much more of an impact both on ourselves and for other people and for our society uh, than maybe, let's say, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago. We just didn't didn't have the technology or or the type of reach that we have now. Do you find that you have to have a certain level of, if not intelligence, then information to realize that you don't know a lot? You always have to have that little voice in your head or maybe hire that voice to be at your shoulder to be the naysayer or to be the questioner or, or you know, to try to ask about what might be limits in what you know or what might be uh, potential mistakes that you're making. So I think there's a way that people can proceed, and that's to and somehow build in a little humility into their lives but also uh, to pay attention to past experience. I mean, one of the problems that people get into is past experience is often terrific information about what's going to happen in the future. Uh, History does have a tendency to repeat itself, but people sort of downplay that, I think, a little bit too much. Do you think this will ever change if societally we don't reform the fact that we pretty harshly punish the answer, I don't know? I think it can change. Societies do change, uh, often in, in remarkable ways. I mean, for, there are data out there, for example, 
that uh, suggests that if you take a look at in the last 50 years and take a look at school kids all the way through college, answering self-esteem questions, their answers have moved up in the positive direction of full half of a standard deviation. That's a massive change yeah. of people thinking well of themselves. Yeah. So we, we, we might be in the middle of a, uh, a massive cultural shift even as we speak. Well, right. If a culture can shift one way, it can shift the other way. We certainly are feeling better about how much we know. The shame of it is we're not knowing a lot more. That, it would be great if the two things tracked. Well, it's also the case that the world changes. So the one problem we have is that which we knew, which was correct, may not necessarily be correct as time goes on. The best thing is to know a lot and to know that you know a lot. But if you have to choose between, okay, let's take a set of circumstances where you don't know a lot. Are you really better off thinking that, hey, I don't know a lot? Or might you be better off thinking, hey, I'm pretty confident in my opinions, just based on how the world reacts to the confident, just based on how, like, Wall Street punishes uncertainty. It doesn't punish down. It doesn't punish bad news as much as it punishes uncertainty. Maybe it's adaptive. Maybe people are better off being confident. Well, there are circumstances where uh, it is best to be uh, confident. I mean, if, if I have a doctor giving me a prescription or, or telling me what lifestyle changes I should be making. I think that doctor should be confident because more often than not, they're going to be right. And more often than not, they're going to cause me to shift my life in a positive direction. Now, before that moment, I don't want that confident doctor. I want a doctor who's really studied my case, sweated out the details, been cautious about how they're interpreting the data they're getting from all the uh, medical tests that I'm giving so that they've done the best job possible diagnosing what my situation is. Often people ask me, do you want to be around confident people or, or unconfident people? And my, my answer is I want to be uh, around both of them, and I want each person to be both of them at the appropriate time. So in times of preparation, be cautious, be afraid, be paranoid. But when it comes time to really convince other people of something that might be best for them, or might be best for yourself, that's the time to flip the confidence switch. So lastly, you are David Dunning. You are half the team behind the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is with Justin Kruger. How has knowing this affected your life? Basically, I don't rebel against being wrong as much anymore. I've learned that the world is a very honest place, and it's going to tell you what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. So I'm willing to go with the advice the world has given me. What that means is I've learned the value of being wrong, and so I just don't uh, complain about it or worry about it that much anymore. David Dunning, Cornell professor, author of the title article in Pacific Standard, Confident Idiots, Why Being Wrong Feels So Right. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And now it's an Antan twig. The other day in New York City, the founder of the electronics store, the erstwhile electronics store, Nobody Beats the Wiz, found out who in fact beats the Wiz, federal prosecutors. Marvin Jamal, who founded this now defunct store, was sentenced to three years in jail for stealing a couple million dollars, defrauding investors. If you're not from the New York area, you maybe have never heard of Nobody Beats the Wiz Or you may remember it from an episode of Seinfeld where Elaine falls for a guy who did the Nobody Beats the Wiz commercials even though he was idiotic. He's not idiotic. He's the Wiz. And nobody beats him. (laughs) Nobody. But if 
you are from New York, that Seinfeld episode seemed weird because there never was a guy who called himself the Wiz. There was a store that called itself Nobody Beats the Wiz. And it wasn't just that they always used the slogan when referring to the store, the Wiz. It's that that was the name of the store. It used to be the Wiz. Then one day, all of a sudden, it was Nobody Beats the Wiz. And everyone kept talking about Nobody Beats the Wiz. And by everyone, I mean the people on their commercials. It's as if we had to say, all right, so uh, on the way home, I got to go to the post office, stop by the dry cleaner. Then I'll go to America Runs on Duncan, and then I'll come home. Or this discussion. Hey, you, you just want to order in tonight? Let's say we could do Chinese. We could do that new Indian place. We could do better ingredients, better pizza, Papa John's, or maybe Thai. That's the really corrupting thing, to make us all unwitting advertisers, repeating his slogan. Not that the jingles weren't an earworm. Nobody beats the whiz. Nobody beats the whiz. Nobody beats the whiz on this programmable VHS VCR with wireless remote and HQ circuitry, a gift of $217. And this JVC... And by the way, that VHS VCR recorder, that was $217. All right, side note here. $217 in 1986 when the commercial's from, $470 today. Electronics have become so much more affordable, but medicine and education has gone through the roof. I have a solution. We should express college tuition in terms of VCR players. So in 1986, tuition at Swarthmore College was $11,000, and now it's $44,000, not including room and board. So in inflation-adjusted VCR terms. In 1986, Swarthmore would cost you 50.7 VCRs. In today's VCRs, that'd be 1,110 VCRs. But that's not really fair. Like I said, VCRs have gotten a lot cheaper. So what you want to do is you want to judge apples to apples. You want to judge how many 1986 VCRs it'll cost you. So a VCR in 1986, like I said, was $217. It becomes $470 when adjusted for inflation. So if you do the math, Swarthmore's tuition today would cost you 94 VCRs from 1986 once adjusted for inflation, right? You have to pay almost double the amount of VCRs to go to the same college. And those VCRs couldn't even play Ishtar because Ishtar didn't come out until 1987. All right, so where was I? Yes, nobody beats the Wiz. You know the reason that they changed their name? It was so they didn't have to actually back up their claim. Like if they said nobody beats the Wiz, someone could come in and say, hey, I found a VCR for $199. You're going to have to beat the competition's price. And nobody beats the Wiz would be like, what? Oh, no, no, no. That's not a claim that we have to back up. That's just the store's name. This is like you going into Pizza Hut and saying, this is a dwelling, not a hut. Come on, man, get wise. And Baja Fresh. You think all that food's fresh? So here on The Gist, I'm going to do that too. You are no longer listening to The Gist. You are listening to The Gist Could Save Your Life. You are listening to, let's try a different one. Beyonce endorses The Gist. Today on Beyonce endorses The Gist, that could work. Today on Be the Third Caller, win $5,000 on The Gist, Vexillology Corner. Or I think I'm going to go with this. We never make mistakes on The Gist. Today on We Never Make Mistakes on The Gist, some of our mistakes. This is what happens during an Antan Twig. Antan Twig is from the old English word for 21, just like Fortnite is from the old English word for 14. So every three weeks, every 21 days, we round up our mistakes. And I will say I erred when I was in Chicago. I strongly implied that Eisenhower was on the dime. I was probably hopped up on hot dogs with pickles. I also at one point referred to Die Valkyrie. That's a spoiler alert. Die Valkyrie is how to pronounce the show, I think. I'm trying. I'm really trying. In other musical misstatements, 
Matt Nelson corrected me when I started talking about death metal and groups like Napalm Death and Megadeth and Metallica. All right, let's go through it. Mid to late period Napalm Death is more accurately described as a hybrid of death metal and grindcore. Death grind, if you will, whereas early Napalm Death is pure grindcore. Lamb of God can be categorized as either groove metal or metalcore. Megadeth and Metallica are thrash metal. In fact, they make up half the legendary big four of 80s thrash Rounded out by Slayer and Anthrax. You don't have to tell me that, Matt. Come on. But you know what the real name of the gist should be? The real name should be because goblins don't exist the gist. And this brings us to the Lopstar. I said that I would award a prize for anyone who could document an actual goblin. Got a couple pictures from a few years ago. Got some stories. Yeah, 1977, I was a hobgoblin. I got two examples of actual documentation. The first one... I probably should give this guy the main prize, but the story isn't as good. But you did the exact right thing, Ken Bensinger. You took a picture of a goblin, and Ken Bensinger also provided the conversation that took place between him and the goblin on Halloween. Me, and what are you? Him, a goblin. Me, for real? I mean, really? A goblin? Him? Yes. Me, can I take your picture? Him, okay? Wow, thanks. I can't believe it. That's why you're the runner-up lobster, Ken. But the lobster of the Antan Twig is Oros Harmon. No picture yet. Oros swears he's going to get me a picture, but here's the story. He goes to a wedding, a costume wedding, because nothing says long-lasting relationship more than your uncle dressed as a Klingon. And he goes to a wedding, and he sees a guy dressed as a goblin. And then he emails the groom, who should be on his honeymoon, or at least dressing up as if he were on his honeymoon, emails the groom. He's like, was that guy? What was that guy? He looked a little like a goblin. And Jim, the groom, says, yeah, that guy was a goblin. Pictures forthcoming. You win, Oros Harmon. You're the lobster of the Antan Twig. And that's it for this edition of Nobody Beats the Gist. Announcing the grand opening of the Nobody Beats the Gist producer Andrea Salenzi Superstore. More aisles of videos and cassettes to serve you better. Joel Meyer, managing producer of podcasts, was actually in the electronic superstore business, but he got out. Forced out, they say. It's legend, mostly. Rumors, really. Get a few drinks in him on the right night, and he just might tell you why he's out. Simply put, he was undersold. Claimed he could not be, but he was undersold. Just in time for our Election Day sale, Andy Bowers is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. At 19 convenient locations throughout the tri-state area, including our newest executive producer superstore, Carl Place. You can listen in iTunes or in Stitcher. We are on Yo! As soon as we're up, we'll yo ya. You go to Yo, you download that app, you sign up for podcasts. We're on Facebook.com slash Slate Gist. Email the gist at Slate.com. Get our daily email at Slate.com slash Gist email. When you ask, nobody beats the gist for the biggest selection of cassettes we listened. In fact, we listen on this phone master answering machine with Bieberless remote and call screening for just $69.99. Use one-year interest-free financing when you use your Nobody Beats the Gist card. Thanks for listening. Nobody beats the whiz. Nobody beats the whiz. Nobody beats the whiz.